Thanks for downloading this show from PC1. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. The following program is a podcast1.com production. Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas to me that'll help you save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. You're not going to believe today's Clark Radius moment in 20 minutes. A scammer got busted by the agency, the federal agency, that he was impersonating. I'm going to tell you the stories people will con you with that you need to be on the alert for as they try to empty your wallet or steal your identity. And later this hour, when you go out to eat, it's already starting to appear in restaurants new information that will help you stay healthier when you go out to eat since so many meals are eaten out instead of at home now. I've got great news for you at being able to make healthier choices when you do eat out. I want to tell you something healthy for your wallet. The ongoing market share war between Amazon and Walmart has just moved up a notch. And these two companies are running away from the pack in sales online and, in Walmart's case, physical stores. Walmart has been through a tough last several years, seemed to turn things around sometime last year, and now has enormous growth going on online. And they finally figured out that in competing with Amazon, the store locations they have, instead of being an albatross or an advantage, and I want to tell you what Walmart is going to do. When you go to buy something at Walmart.com, which typically is cheaper than Amazon.com already, you don't have any kind of membership to get free shipping. You have to spend $35. Fill your cart with $35 bucks to get free shipping. But free shipping is not really free, not for Amazon, not for Walmart. I read an analyst report that Amazon is spending $7.50 to deliver every order they deliver to you on average. That's their average cost. So what Walmart is doing is they're saying, if you come and pick up the item in our store, not only will you get the price we already showed you on Walmart.com, but on over a million items, we'll give you a lower price if you'll pick up at the store instead of having us deliver to you. So it's like a negative shipping charge where you get an additional cut. So what Walmart's doing is they're creating more price gap between themselves and Amazon and then compounding that with by getting you to the store to pick up an item There's got to, they're not saying this, but logic would say that you may be more likely to buy other things when you go to the store 
to pick up the items he bought at walmart.com. I think it's great. Now, what's the downside of picking something up at Walmart that you order at walmart.com? Walmart stores are very inconsistent in how they handle in-store pickup. My producer Joel and I were talking about what happens when you go to the pickup area and sometimes it'll be unstaffed and you'll hit a buzzer and nobody ever comes. And I've had times where I've had to wait as much as 15 minutes to pick up an item. So the lower price won't be enough. Walmart's got to make sure they execute. And when you go in to pick something up, that it's actually there and ready for you and somebody's there to give the item to you. And Mystery Caller is here. Hi, I don't see your name. What's your name? This is Mike. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm at yourself today, Clark. Good, thank you. So, Mike, you have a an eight-year-old vehicle that you're running around in. Is that right? That is correct. And what are you thinking of doing? Well, I've already made the uh, second purchase for the family. And, you know, it's a larger vehicle. We need, I mean, we've had the little one since the, the kids were younger, so uh, they filled up the seat, and now they've expanded over the seat. So I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out which, <laughs> yeah, which which way to go as far as, you know, do I use the, the bigger vehicle for my day of the commute, which I'm on a rotating schedule, or keep driving the small one? You know, I just... So you have, your, you have your older car that's not really practical when you're with the kids. Correct. And you're wondering, would it be better for you to drive the brand new one that works better with your whole family and use it for commuting, or would you be better off keeping that eight-year-old vehicle and running the miles up on it for commuting? Correct. A hundred percent, you're better off using the eight-year-old vehicle for your commuting. You know, the new vehicle has such a high cost per mile, every mile you drive. And so it's new, it's expensive, it's big, probably burns more gas than the eight-year-old one that's smaller. Yes, yes it does. (laughs) So I would say that uh, you would be much better served using the big new vehicle for being a family hauler and when it's just you, you haul yourself around in the eight-year-old smaller vehicle. Okay, great. Because, you know, those miles, if you've got a, a vehicle that's eight years old, how many miles does it have on it? Uh, about 156. Okay. So it's pretty much depreciated out. Your cost for every additional mile you put on it is not zero, but it's extremely low now. Every mile you put on a new big SUV is going to cost you somewhere between 60 and 75 cents every mile you drive it. So it's very much to your advantage to keep driving that older vehicle. And, you know, today, let me go reverse. It used to be that a car that made it to 100,000 miles, people were like in shock that any car went that long, Mike. Mm -hmm. And now... The 100,000-mile mark is really 250,000 miles because cars have gotten 
so incredibly more reliable than they used to be and durable. So that would be what I would do. Okay, great. I mean, that's what I thought. I mean, this it's paid for, um, and I know you've always strived to you know, keep something that's paid for going to those payments. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> because you think about what difference those payments make in your life, the money that you don't have to spend in your life anymore. What are the payments on the brand new vehicle? Oh, it's not a new one. It's it's a second hand. But oh, good. Uh, yeah. yeah, good. So you held that cost down too. Wow, I like the way you think. Jay is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Did I say your name right, Jay or Jaya? Yeah, this is Jaya. Thanks, Jaya. Hi. Hey, good. How are you? Great, thank you. Uh, you want to talk about your checks? Yeah, um, I always wondered, Clark. Uh, my large bank checks. Um, always contain my routing information and my account number. And um, I don't know, I don't, I mean, many times when I write these checks out to people or, you know, uh, online for paying my tax, um, you know, I'm always, I always wonder how safe is this information because if people have a check, they have pretty much have my routing number and my account number. Yeah, that's right. And that's not just with your giant bank. That would be with any bank that, or a credit union because that's how the checks process is with the bank routing information and your individual account number. So that's why I haven't carried a checkbook in must be 20 years because you're making so much information available and you're potentially making yourself so vulnerable by having that information so readily available to someone. Because you're right, if somebody who, who is up to no good sees a copy of your check, they have everything they need to present drafts against your account and potentially empty your account. Right, especially these days and everything, a lot of stuff is done online. I mean, you really don't need much to put that in and charge my account. You are so right. So... I I feel that checks today should only be used in situations where that's your only choice. Okay. I mean, so that, that holds true even for bill pay. Then, you know, I use my bank to do a lot of bill pay. Yeah, I won't. Um, um, you know, I I do bill pay, and that's one of the reasons that I never carry a checkbook. And your bill pay service, uh, many of the things they pay for you, they pay electronically. And, but the things that are paid to an individual, they just send them a paper check, and that paper right. check will have the same information trailing back to your account with the bank routing information and your account number. So you still have some vulnerability there, but since most bills you pay using bill pay, the money travels electronically, the risk is not the same. It's a lower potential risk okay um and the risk and also the liability is not as strong as a credit card right with the bank check well, well that is true but if you as an individual have your checking account compromised in whatever way under the law the bank or credit union must restore your funds now it's different if you were operating a business the rules are entirely different without much protection for a business if a business checking account is compromised 
But for you as an individual, it's more the hassle factor of fighting with your own bank to get your own money restored into your account. Checks are so archaic, and I think it's Britain is the first English-speaking country in the world that is eliminating checks in their entirety, and if I remember right, it's next year. There'll be no more checks. Tom is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tom. How are you, Clark? Great, thank you. You have a question about credit freeze. Yeah, I heard on your program quite a while ago, but it went through my mind, security freeze on credit cards, so it's harder for people to access your credit and create uh, false accounts. I went ahead and put one on my account. I'm married, have been for a long time, and my wife is basically on all our accounts, too, although she has separate credit cards with her own name on them and different numbers. Would I be? Would it be prudent for me to do the same for her accounts? Well, so you're not doing it for her accounts. So a credit freeze, what it does is the purpose of it is to prevent somebody from opening new accounts as if they're you. Right. And if your wife were to do a credit freeze, same purpose. So your existing accounts are in no way affected by you putting in place a credit freeze. The purpose right. of it is to prevent somebody who gets your information and there are so many ways people get your information from pretending to be you and opening accounts as if they're you. So if you're comfortable okay. with having done it for yourself, I would really advise you to proceed and your wife to do credit freeze as well so that you're both equally as protected from somebody who would try to open up an account pretending to be you or her. It's time for today's Clark Rageous Moment. It's become so easy for people to pretend to be something they're not, and then we become susceptible to being harmed. Today, it involves a scheme to take over your computer at your home or your business. Hands, rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous Moment. Okay, so you got to give this crook some credit for creativity. Guy's name's Danny Croft, and it's <laughs> under a court order to stop pretending to be offering people a service on behalf of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. He claimed by contacting people that his organization called the PC Guru or PC Guru Tech Support or Elite Tech Support was hired by the FTC to contact you and remove malicious software installed on your computer. And it's and so he would then charge you to supposedly clean up your computer and it was all just a big pack of lies. Now, the irony of all this is it's the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, the very people that he was lying, saying he was representing, who went to court and got an injunction against Danny. But the message for you is with the ability of people to make virtually unlimited calls for essentially for free, 
the number of times that someone will call you impersonating someone else, pretending to be something else, and the real part is the harm they bring into your life, taking over your wallet, taking over your identity, or most often what happens with the scammy computer calls is they take over your computer and they put a virus on it and then they ransom your own computer back to you. When you receive a call, remember, you didn't initiate the call, you receive a call, and somebody claims to be who knows who from who knows what, you don't know if they really are from whatever it is. Do not divulge any personal information. Do not let anybody threaten you. When somebody calls you and you don't know for sure who they are, my best advice to you is politely end the call before any trouble can start. Okay, here are some really surprising car facts for you. In Churchill, Canada, residents leave their cars unlocked. That's in case someone needs to escape a polar bear. It's true. And in Sweden, drivers are required by law to keep their headlights on at all times. Day, night, rain, sunshine, doesn't matter. And now, here's another interesting and actually helpful thing about cars that you might not know. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for new cars. Their certified dealer network also has an inventory of over 700,000 pre-owned cars nationwide. So whether you're looking for a new or used car, you can get real pricing on actual inventory and a better buying experience through the True Car certified dealer network. Oh yeah, here's another fun fact. True Car customers can see if they're getting a good or great price before they buy. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with their True Car certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy that car, new or used, visit True Car and enjoy a better car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show, where you learn ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. ClarkDeals.com is where you find the deals. So, do you know that we are just a couple of weeks away from when all chain restaurants, or even local restaurants that have 20 or more locations, are going to have to post calories on the menu. This is something that some of the big chains have already started complying with because of the new federal law. And actually, the law is not new. The law was passed last decade? Long time ago, whatever. And the mandatory date is what's coming up in just a couple of weeks. But McDonald's, Starbucks, Panera Bread... Just three examples of companies that have posted calories. And there are some states that post calories. And it seems based on data in states where it's long been required that restaurants post calories, that roughly one in five people are influenced by being able to see those calorie counts. I can tell you it completely has changed how I order. That when I see something I want to eat, and then I see the calorie number next to it, that it very easily could change my order. Today, 
I went to the uh, chicken chain Chick-fil-A. My meal was 690 calories. I know because they post the calorie counts, and I know that I ran up 690 calories. If I go into Panera and I look at the menu, I know that one bagel is this many calories, another one's that many, another's that, a sandwich is this. And again, maybe eight out of 10 people are not going to notice or use it as a way to change behavior. But when you think about how much we eat out, because people eat out a huge percent of their meals today, and not having that knowledge. You know, when I go in the supermarket, I can look at a label for most anything, and I can see how many calories it is per serving. And by the way, your dietitian, please go ahead and post on Clark Stinks that I should stop talking calories, calories, calories. But the whole calorie thing has worked for me. I used to weigh about 35 pounds more than I've weighed the last decade. And I have been able to control my weight by doing two things. I watch the calorie count every day, and I weigh myself every morning. So I have immediate feedback. Every morning is discipline, and I have a number of calories that I target every day. It's a soft target, not a hard target. And then on Sunday, I have what I call treat day, where I eat whatever I want. And it's a great aversion therapy because on Monday, I almost don't want to see food because it's, uh, you feel kind of crummy having eaten a lot of junk. Well, it's good while I'm eating it. It's just later doesn't feel so good. But this idea of giving you the power to make decisions, you know, it's like the thing that went on in Northern California when they were trying to ban Happy Meals at McDonald's. That infuriated me. And when New York was trying to ban anybody from buying a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi that was bigger than, I think it was 16 ounces, I just can't stand anything that smacks of any form of prohibition. On the other hand, giving you and me the information to make good decisions, if we wish to make those decisions, but giving us the tools to do it, I think is what it should be about. And I saw an item in the Denver Post that pizza chains are terrified, terrified beyond the pale about having to post calorie counts. But Costco Wholesale has posted their pizza calories for years, and it has not hurt their pizza sales at all. The information's there. If I remember right, it's 710 calories for the pepperoni slice, 760 for the cheese slice, and I don't remember what the combo is. But the information's there. And their slices, uh, a slice at Costco is the equivalent of two slices anywhere else. They're huge slices. But the information's there. And if I choose to get a slice of pizza, I have chosen to do that. 
but I have the information to decide. So pizza rots, don't be afraid of letting your customers know the truth. And remember, 80% of people aren't even going to look at it anyway. Ben is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Great. Thank you. You got a question for me about your social security number being out there. How's it out yeah. there? Um, well, I've heard you talk in the past about not putting it on medical records. Well, I have unfortunately done that. And I was wondering if there was a way to get them to remove that from my medical records. Never going to happen. I didn't think so. Yeah. So everybody in medicine wants your social security number for only one purpose and one purpose only. And that is if they want to hire a bill collector or debt collector to come after you for an unpaid medical bill, the collection agency wants your social. There's no other purpose or reason at all for any hospital, lab, surgery center, doctor's office, anybody to ever need your social security number. It's just about being defensive about the wallet to come after you to get the money. And so what happens is half of all, roughly half of all data breaches happen at medical facilities. Because, you know, they're busy spending their money on providing you medical care. Right, Ben? Yeah. So so they're not paying much attention. They do a terrible job at properly managing the data they have. And one medical practice after another, one insurer after another, one hospital after another, have had these horrific data breaches. And they've got so much more information on you in those medical records than most anybody else. And then if they've got your social security number on top of it, they have on a silver platter offered full high-level butler service to somebody who wants to engage in full-blown, complete, total identity theft. So that's that's what I'm worried about. So if that's made you nervous, the one useful step is something that Uh, came up just a few minutes ago, and that's doing a credit freeze. I've already done that, yes. So if you've done a credit freeze, don't worry that your Social Security number is out there. Now, i got to tell you something weird that happened to me. So I go to a medical center, uh, well, I've been to several, for my health, and one of them... They give me paperwork for me to see if any of my information has changed when I came back for a follow-up visit. Now, I had never given my Social Security number, and right on the form they hand back to me, it had my name, address, date of birth, Social Security number, information about my parents, everything you could think of. My parents are both deceased. But their information was on there, too. And it's like, what are they trying to do? Are they also in the identity theft business? And how did they get my Social Security number when I never gave it? But again, like you, Ben, I have my credit frozen so I can rest easy. 
Okay. So you've done uh, you've done the right thing to try to put the genie back in the bottle. Jose is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jose. Hey, hello, Howard. Thank you for taking my call. It's my so, pleasure. All right. So, uh, great show. I've been listening for years. Um, Thank you. So, th- this is uh, my my dilemma. Um, I'll be retiring in probably in six years um, if, if I go for the 67 and plus uh, retirement. And... I'm debating whether to roll over the pension that I have with a former employer. And the reason I've been losing like $300 a month roughly until I reach that age, actually forever. Um, And the reason I'm going in that direction is because my former non-for-profit employer was bought out by a for-profit employer. And uh, for what I read, Pensions are not secure. I'm, I, I seem to be more concerned with a for-profit than a non-for-profit funded pension. All right. So with a pension, um, most pensions are insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Okay. And if the if the acquiring employer went insolvent and they close their doors and they go bust and they can't meet the pension obligation, then uh-huh. uh, in most cases, the pension would come from the semi-governmental uh, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And uh-huh. so you have, and it's backed up by the taxpayers. So unless you were getting a monstrously large pension, you would not likely see what's known as a pension haircut if your pension plan at the former place went bust. So I don't know that you need to necessarily worry. Do you have have a pension plan document? Yes, I do. Okay. So in there... All the terms, yes. Go ahead. All right. So in that document you likely will have information about the plan itself and how it's administered, uh, what the plan's official name is. And if you go to pbgc.gov for Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, yeah, you should be able to talk with PBGC, say that five times, and find out whether or not your plan is one that would be covered by the pension benefit guarantee if the plan did go insolvent. Right. Because okay. usually you're going to get a better benefit if you let the clock run and then once the pension starts, letting them just send you a check every month. Right, right. Yeah, that was that was what I wanted to do, but again, the for profit <laughs> Intervention made me a little nervous, but I is there. I do you have sure reason to believe that they're unstable now? No, actually, what got me worried was that when during the process of the takeover, you know, all that time that they're talking to uh, the politicians and everyone in town about the takeover, they said we will fund the pension, and it sounded like why is that even 
for me, it sounded like, well, is that even a choice? I mean, is that something that <laughs> them to do? <laughs> okay, so what's happening around the country is companies, yeah. especially when companies buy some, one company buys another, if they're a company yeah. without a pension plan and they buy one with, they usually uh, do what's called a pension plan termination, or they uh-huh. will sell the pension plan to an insurance company. And then the insurance company becomes the responsible party to pay you out over the rest of your life. But if there's no reason for you to be um, concerned that they are going to fail financially, I don't know there's any real worry you should have, especially if you follow the steps I'm talking about with verifying with the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that your pension is going to be a protected one. And if it's a protected one, then I would not lose a second sleep about this. Wait the six or seven years till you're going to retire, and then start that monthly check coming every single month for the rest of your life, which is why pensions are so great. Gosh, this feels like the identity theft hour on the Clark Howard Show. Wayne, you have an angle you want to present to me about potential or real or real identity theft what's going on well it's real identity theft um can you hear me i hear you perfectly okay for some reason your person that uh, called me couldn't hear me perfectly for some reason i don't know i heard her perfectly anyway my son uh, she needs she listens i'll tell you what that's about she listens to too much loud music (laughs) okay all right well, my son was notified that uh, uh, company servers were breached and his identity was uh, breached. He got an, a letter regarding that uh, back in October. I don't think he did anything about it then. Then in January, he got a letter from the IRS stating that someone had filed a uh, 2016 return in his name. Did he do that? And, of course, he hadn't filed that return by January. He hasn't filed it yet. So those and two then, things could be directly related, or they could be coincidence. Okay, well then, uh, he got notified by his employer that the website that they were using to put on W-2s so people could go on and electronically download their W-2s was breached. And he, he was one of the people that uh, they... Uh, breached. And you said this is your son, Wayne? That's correct. Don't stand then, close to him during a thunderstorm, okay? Right. And then, last Friday, he got a letter, another letter from the IRS said that they had identified some suspicious activities regarding the DOE, what is it, FAFSA? Yeah, the FAFSA but, for college? Yes. Okay, so he's no, what there are 100,000 people in the country that are part of that data breach is what I've read so far. And Wayne, if there was ever a candidate for putting in place a credit freeze more than your son, I don't know one. Because with all that track record of heavy data breach going on with his personal information, you throw in somebody filing a false tax return as if they're him, please direct your son to Clark.com and push him, nag him, 
to put credit freeze in place. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports this podcast. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust, someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is the web address. Clark.com slash ask is where you get your questions answered. I want to talk in a half hour about the latest developments and latest news involving a cancer that strikes so many men in America, prostate cancer. There are brand new recommendations that have been released on when you should be tested and what you should do with the information that you find from the test you get. And that's coming in a half hour for you or a man in your life. I want to talk right now about something that I get questions on every week, and I only talk about in shorthand, and I forget that there's information about it that you may need that I'm not giving you the whole picture. The booming part of the computer market is something called a Chromebook. Chromebooks have demolished the computer market for MacBooks and, and traditional Windows computers because Chromebooks are past brilliant. They are light, inexpensive. They go on the Internet in six seconds or less, and they just work. One of the great things about them is that they are pretty much virus-resistant which has been such a problem for the Windows computers and the Macs. And so these are things that you can buy a stripped-down one for 100 or so dollars. A really fancy one, you'd have to work at it to get it above $300. These things have, from very portable sizes, typically 11-inch screen sizes, like the smaller MacBook Air 11.6, to really, really large screen devices, and all they do is surf the web. They tend to have minimal on-site storage, and since people do so much now with things that are app-based and web-based, the device is basically a completely portable computer that allows you to access all your files anywhere in the world. 
And so these Chromebooks are made by any of a number of manufacturers. And they're available all over the place. Uh, Hewlett-Packard makes them, Samsung, Acer, Asus. Uh, I'm sure there are others as well that make these. And they are Odell. Sorry, Dell, I forgot you. Lenovo. Yeah, I'm looking. I mean, they're just so readily available. If all you want is a machine for web surfing, you don't have to worry about having virus protection on it or anything like that. And they're not going to slow down over time because they get loaded with all kinds of bloatware on them. They just surf. And if one breaks... You're out $100. If you break a MacBook, you're out typically $1,000. Or even if you spend big time on a Chromebook, you'd be out $300. Now, what do these things not do? They're not designed to do something where it sits and resides on the machine itself. That's why the big push from Microsoft with Microsoft Word and all their stuff is to access it over the internet rather than to have the software loaded on your own machine. The one downside of a Chromebook, and it depends on your life and your situation whether this is a real downside, is that when you don't have internet access, the machine is pretty much useless to you. There are people that are adept at making it work for them well when they don't have Wi-Fi. But the machine is really designed to be used wherever you have Wi-Fi. And the deals on them, again, are extraordinary. Now, if you're doing very heavy use for work kind of functions, there's one standard I'd want you to look at And that's having a machine that has sufficient RAM on it so that it won't slow down on you like crazy. And then you're going to be looking at, uh, typically you want four gigs of RAM on one if you're needing to do a lot of serious work on one. And you get to four gigs you're going to probably run it up to $175 to $225 for one of these things. But again, nothing compared to what you may be used to paying for a Windows laptop or a MacBook laptop, either the Air or the Pro. Thomas is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Thomas. Hey, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You want to rent a place to go Escape from life. Yes, as far as possible. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking of doing. Uh, ideally, on the beach, accessible to a beach, um, two adults, two kids. Um, not sure whether the Airbnb type things that are so popular are the best deal, or if the going to the rental people in the near the beach that work in that area or who's who's doing the best deals these okay days? that is a great question because if you use airbnb 
that is the safest environment for you to rent a place. And I have learned with Airbnb that people will give an Airbnb property a very high approval rating, but they may have more modest goals and what they want in a place than you do. So when you look at a place and you read the reviews, I also want you to look at places that have a ton of pictures so that they're not just showing you the the vista of the beach and the ocean or gulf beyond or whatever it is, the Caribbean, Mediterranean, wherever it is you're going, but that they show you what do the bathrooms look like, what does the kitchen look like, that you get, just like when you go look at a home you're going to buy, what does everybody go look at? They look at the bathrooms and the kitchen. So same thing with renting a place on Airbnb. Now let's go to the other alternative you talked about, renting from a local vacation renter in at a beach area. So do you know that'll usually be potentially cheaper, Thomas? Cheaper than from the actual from Airbnb that rent their stuff. I did not know that. So if you if there's a uh, rental management company in a local beach area and you go direct to them, you do have the chance for a lower cost because often with Airbnb, you, people are often not aware they're paying essentially two fees. You're paying a fee to Airbnb and you're paying a fee to the management company managing that property. Not exposed, it's built into the price you're paying. So you so tend to mark up. Right. It's a double markup instead of a single markup. But the advantage of that double markup is Airbnb is protecting your money. When you rent a place from a local rental agency, you got to hope that they're legit, that they're honest, and they're solvent. And so I only like for people to rent from a local uh, rental agency in a beach community. If you have first-hand prior experience with that agency and that they've steered you right over the years. And so as an example, let's say you don't have that and you're going to a beach area. You rent this time from Airbnb and you're going to end up almost certainly dealing with a management company. And if they seem just top shelf, top drawer, fantastic, then when you go back next time on your family trip, you rent direct from that agency rather than through Airbnb. So even through Airbnb, I'm most likely going to be dealing with a middleman on the rental? Yes, because a lot of the beach rentals are owned by absentee owners. And so they're not there to manage the property. And so they are using a rental management agency to handle it. And so they they must get their cut, which will be, uh, depending on how heavy the cycle is on rentals, it'll be 10% to 33% that they're taking. And then so on top of that... And the rental company are all getting, getting, getting cuts of this. Right. That's why I tell people when they ask me about investing in a beach rental property or something like that, and they call it an investment that they're thinking of buying. I talk about it from 
the perspective we're talking about, but out of their wallet, that, yeah, the rent may be X number of dollars per week, but you're not getting that. This much gets cut out for this person. This much gets cut out for that one. And so it's not as lucrative to rent out a beach property as you might think. And in your case, a lot of that money is not going to the actual property owner, but it's just part of the cost of doing business renting that place. That's why if you ever have a friend who has a place at the beach, your friend is the best one to rent from. David's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, David. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, David. You have a question for me that I only get in summer, and you're jumping the gun. Well, <laughs> sorry about that. That's I'll okay. I'll you back. <laughs> no. What is it you'd like to ask me about? Well, I'm planning on moving in the next few months from New York to uh, Florida. And uh, I was wondering about those container companies that come in, drop a container, you fill it up yourself, and then they ship it for you. That has become a giant business. Because a lot of people aren't of a mind that they want to drive a rental truck, you know, across, in your case, not across the country, but New York to Florida. That's a pretty long drive in a rental truck. But they don't mind loading up and unloading their own things and that's why it's become such a big business to to pay the one of those pod services and the biggest one is called pods right you know that's the most recognized brand name correct so uh, as far as hiring one of those companies do you know that i cannot recall getting any complaints ever about any of the pod uh, rental companies. And when you ask me about traditional movers, I've had over the years, at the minimum, hundreds of complaints about traditional movers. So I would say that based on my experience in this area, you can feel comfortable comparing them on the issue of price and what they say in terms of the cycle in which they'll get the delivery done for you from New York to Florida. Okay, great. And there's uh, there's roughly, I think there's about 10 of them now that do the state-to-state moves with the pods. Oh, I, I only saw two that I saw online. So right, now there's a list... Uh, Joel, moving.com has one, right? Not moving.org. Right, moving.com. Moving.com. Moving.org is for the traditional moving industry. But Mm -hmm. moving.com, if you go there, you'll see a lot of information about the container companies and hiring them for a move. You'll get information about the size of the pods each of them do and how their method of operation is for handling your move. Well, wonderful. I'll have to check that out. So are you going to be a a 12-month-a-year person in Florida, or are you going to be 7 and 5? 12. 12. All right. Well, I hope you love it. Where in Florida are you going? Um, Near Orlando. All right. Well, have a great time with your new life and zero state income tax. It's time for Ask Clark. You post a question for me at clark.com. Producer Joel asks it for you. 
Clark Wendy has a question. She says, I find it extremely difficult to save money on groceries as a single person in our society. Our food, infrastructure, and grocery items seem designed for couples and family uh, families. I live in Los Angeles. What can you suggest? Well, the answer for Los Angeles changed in the last year, and that's because Los Angeles has been invaded by Aldi. A-L-D-I. Aldi is now in, I think, 32 of the 50 states, is growing by leaps and bounds. The reason they're growing so quickly is they offer very high-quality food at 40% less than the typical supermarket, 4-0. Now, a lot of people hate the Aldi shopping experience because uh, it's a very austere store, A lot of things are still in the shipping packages, and you reach in and you grab them out of the shipping packages. They, for most items, have only a choice of one or two. Who needs 42 choices in ketchup anyway? And most everything is their private label. But I can tell you as a regular Aldi shopper, I love saving money there. And if if it's your kind of place, try it. If you like the food you get there, or substantially most of the food items you buy there, that is a great way for a single individual to get huge savings on your groceries. All right, and Eric wants to know, I have a Roth IRA with one of your favorite companies. Can I open up a second Roth with a different company if my yearly, as long as my yearly contributions are limited to 5500 You sure can. You want to have more than one Roth? You don't mind the pay- additional paperwork? Absolutely, you can have a Roth with as many companies as you want as long as you stay below the 5500 each year. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You are no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. Thanks for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our web address. When you have a question for me, Clark.com slash ask. And on Facebook, follow me at Facebook.com slash Clark Howard. There are brand new recommendations for men about prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is the second most common cancer among men. It is the third most common cancer overall in the country. And it can be fatal. So this has been very confusing for men. And I want to explain the new uh, recommendations just released. And I want to state something up front. I have prostate cancer myself. I sit on the board of the Prostate Cancer Foundation. And 
as I have shared over the last, I guess, eight or nine years since I was diagnosed, I have been in a program called active surveillance. I've had no treatment at all, which to a lot of people makes it seem like I'm on some kind of kamikaze mission and that I'm being really stupid. But the reality is that prostate cancer is different than most other cancers in that a huge percent of people diagnosed with prostate cancer are going to die with it, not from it, meaning that the cancer itself will likely never be life-threatening for a segment of men diagnosed with it. As far as science knows, somewhere between roughly 30 and 50% of men have non-life-threatening prostate cancer when they're diagnosed with it. But historically, when a man has been diagnosed with prostate cancer till the last five years, when things psychology started changing in the country, men would be diagnosed with it, they would rush into treatment and have to deal with uh, side effects that are not at all comfortable for you in your life and may have been completely unnecessary. Today, a significant number of men that are diagnosed with prostate cancer do what I'm doing if they fit the profile. When pathology analyzes your prostate cancer and gives you a scoring on it, known as the Gleason, if your score is one that is not considered to be particularly dangerous, it is generally advised that you go into what I'm in, which is active surveillance, where you be checked on the schedule your doctor gives you and that you stick to that schedule. When I was first diagnosed, I had a checkup every six months. But it's been so long and my cancer at this point shown no growth, I'm now checked roughly every 18 months. And I'm about to go through another battery of tests and we'll see what those show and they may show that I continue to have something non-threatening the problem has been that a lot of times men overreact to a diagnosis and have treatment that will not do anything to lengthen your life and instead may harm the quality of your life for the years you have remaining And that's why the recommendation from the medical specialists and scientists is that if you are 70 and over now, do not, do not, when you go for a visit to your doctor, have a PSA test. PSA test is what leads you to a potential concern that you might have prostate cancer leads you then to have what's known as a biopsy, which is not the most pleasant experience in the world, and then may lead you from that to some form of treatment that, again, statistically, will not lengthen your life. Now, the controversy in medicine and science that has been in place for now a number of years is should men past age 55 be tested either and 
now the recommendation is even though past age 70 you should not be tested for PSA and then get into the whole cycle of worry and testing and treatment and blah 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 that 55 to 69 and this is a change in the regu- in the recommendations that you should when you go to the doctor for an annual physical or whatever have your PSA checked and then if you have a bad PSA number that then you may be advised to have a biopsy but I want to emphasize that even if that biopsy comes back showing cancer you know we in America are such action-oriented people we go right from diagnosis to solution what's the treatment I should have and a lot of people have trouble with uncertainty they can't imagine again that I have had what's been diagnosed as cancer inside me for the last eight or nine years but I know it's weird but this is one cancer that is different has many different genetic formations and there are people diagnosed who may be diagnosed with a very dangerous form of prostate cancer and you need to have full court press treatment but again remember there's a 30 to 50% chance that what you have is not going to be dangerous. And that's why talking to your doctor about active surveillance is the thing you should be doing. If you're younger than age 55, normally you would only want to have a PSA if there's family history, that you are in a position where based on genetics in your family you were at risk and in that case there are extreme circumstances where somebody might even want to do a PSA test as early as 40 years old and I mentioned I'm on the board of the Prostate Cancer Foundation if you don't know what to do you have questions concerns family members been diagnosed with prostate cancer go read what we have as a guide and information for you at pcf.org. And Joel, we didn't get to the number of Ask Clarks we wanted to do a few minutes ago, so let's pick some up now. Yeah, Clark, I got a bunch hanging out here. People have a lot of questions for you. Uh, Mike had a question. He says, I have two older cars to sell. I've never sold a car privately before, and I'm not sure how to go about it to make sure I'm getting a reasonable price. What do you recommend? Selling the car, right? Right, yeah, selling it, but making sure he gets the most for it. All right, so first of all, if you're going to sell your own car privately, be a very patient individual. And you will find that a lot of people will book appointments to see the car and no-show. A lot of people will uh, not be up to the most um, reputable reasons they want to see your car There's lots of mysterious things that happen selling a car yourself. You have to have a merchant's mentality, a merchant's personality to sell your own car. And, you know, you trade in a car, you take a hit of a couple of thousand dollars. But 
in most people's cases, it it's something they'd rather take the hit than to deal with what's involved being a merchant. As far as what price you should quote, what I'd like for you to do is go to autotrader.com and look what people are asking, and most everything there will be dealers. There'll be some private sellers. And the price the dealers are asking is inflated, so they have some room to bargain to negotiate. So if you base your price on what they are posting and come in lower than them by a meaningful amount, you stand out when you're advertising your vehicle for sale at whatever site you choose to advertise it. You may consider uh, meeting people at a neutral location that's a safe one rather than having people come to your own house. And never accept a cashier's check from anybody for the purchase of a vehicle that you're selling. And always do a bill of sale when you're selling that car. All right, Richard has a question on his car, or getting a new car. I'm considering getting a new-ish vehicle in the next six months or so. My question is about buying a retired fleet vehicle from a rental agency. There used to be a stigma against that because people would drive them like rentals. But with today's technology <laughs> level and longer warranty periods, I'm wondering if it's such a bad idea. So I rent about 30 cars a year, and I have noticed through the phase of consolidation of the car rental agencies, there are three main owners now of all the various brands of car rentals, that I'm not pleased with the level of maintenance being done on the vehicles. So what I'm concerned about, they're putting more miles on the rental cars before they turn them over than car rental companies used to. I just have this feeling they're not maintaining them as well as in prior years. And so I am more nervous about you buying a car rental that is now a fleet sale as a used vehicle than I would have been in the past. I I don't advise it. All right. And Vicki wants to know, what steps are the best ones for establishing good credit history for high school students? Wonderful question. There is no particularly easy path for a high schooler to start to develop a credit history. Now, I'll tell you what I've done with both my daughters. One of my daughters now is an, an adult. She's about to turn 28. She is on her own now. But when she was a teenager, I added her as an authorized user to one of my credit cards. And then she was able, as a college student, to get her own college student card because she already had an established credit profile. And then I removed her as an authorized user on my account. Now I've done the same thing with my high school junior. And she now has authorized user status on a card, now is showing a credit record. And I should point out not every credit card issuer reports authorized users to the credit bureau. But if they do, it is the greatest way for you to help a high schooler establish credit. All right, another question about kids. Sarah says, Clark, my 12-year-old son enjoys doing odd jobs for family and friends, and he's earned himself a a little bit of savings. What's the best investment for him at his age to earn interest and save for the future? So if it's just to earn interest, generally the best way is to go with an online bank. 
Now, not all online banks will allow... How old again? 12 years old. 12. Not all online banks will allow a minor to have an account. Some will allow custodial accounts. Others will not. But if you go to bankrate.com and click on their savings button, you'll see the highest savings rates around the country. And that would be great for your 12-year-old to have an account and as an alternative if it's really longer term you got to have a hundred dollars but i love for a kid to have a schwab one account at charles schwab and start investing with them in schwab funds and you can go into schwab and talk to them at one of the offices about how to do that and take your 12 year old with you brian is with us on the clark howard show hi brian hey clark how are you great thank you you have a family member who loves saving money at a young age is that right that's correct my uh, my 14 year old boy has about a thousand dollars saved up and i'm a big listener to you and i just wondered what's the best vehicle for him to do with that thousand dollars for his future well i think that's absolutely fantastic and i don't know how you've communicated the values to your 14-year-old to save money, but whatever it is, bottle it up and peddle it to other parents because that's just great. <laughs> okay. How did he do it? Um, he does chores around the house, so he gets paid for the lawn, washing the cars. Um, some of it's been birthday money. We, we've kind of tried to stay as close as we can to him saving between 50 and 80% of what he makes and spending the 20 to to 40 percent at the max on items that he would like to have well so now the fruits of that is he's got a grand and when and for what purpose is he likely to use this thousand dollars plus what he adds to it over time over his teenage years well um i'm a big proponent i read on your website and i look there and i see that if a 15 year old was to put away two thousand dollars a year in a short amount of time over seven years i believe leaving that money then to your 65 you can be potentially be quite quite well to do i was looking to guide him toward something of that nature so for now i i like a twofer for him thousand dollars is enough for him to go in the vanguard star fund And the Star Fund is a great teaching vehicle to teach your 14-year-old about investing. Because the Star Fund is both a a multi, uh, it's like an entire portfolio of investing, all in $1,000, where they divide the money out into all different forms of investing. And it's a great teaching vehicle to teach your 14-year-old the principles of investing. Okay. The management fee on it is very low. There's no commission to go in the Vanguard Star, and a thousand is the minimum, and it can be used in an investment account. Doesn't have to be a Roth because your son's not eligible for a Roth. Got it. When he starts working at a job where he's getting a, a traditional paycheck or doing work at other people's houses, doing the lawn or whatever, he would then be eligible to do a Roth, which is the best possible thing for him to do as a teenager because then he has 50 years of tax-free growth and tax-free spending got it so and clark the star fund do i do that in my name or my or my 14 year old you do it in his name with you as the custodian for it 
So what happens if you go to Vanguard.com and you go to set up a star fund for him, you'll have to print out the paperwork and mail it in. If he were an adult, you could do everything online, but you register online, print it out, stick it in an envelope with the $1,000, and bam, he's part of the investor class at 14 years old. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbor of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd I'd never really come across them in bad ways it was always even when I said hello he never seemed to speak back to you he was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it the British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican I'm Rita Foley